Welcome to the Wickedly Smart Women podcast, featuring stellar conversations with emerging and established Wickedly Smart Women. Thanks for joining us today as we celebrate women who are committed, care deeply, and have the courage to take action and create conscious change all around the world. Now here's your Wickedly Smart host, Angel B. Hartwell. Welcome to another episode of the Wickedly Smart Women podcast, where we celebrate wickedly smart women and provide our listeners with a wealth of wisdom, along with immediately actionable steps to be smarter, spunkier, and more successful in their impact and their leadership. This is your host, Angel B. Hartwell, and today we welcome our special guest, Kara Tuttle-Bell. Kara is a speaker, author, consultant, and an activist educator with over 15 years experience working in higher education. Kara is the author of Drowning in Timidity, Women, Politeness, and the Power of Assertive Living, and has contributed chapters to various books and publications, including The Future Female Leader, Preparing Girls and Women to Lead the World, The Female Code, A Woman's Book for Empowerment and Confidence, The Professional Woman, Pivoting to the New Normal, and the forthcoming Raising Daughters. I am so excited to have you with us today, Kara. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So I think you're our first activist educator. So I am really curious about that. And I want to actually begin our time together today, Kara, maybe with your own education. Like, were you someone as a child or a little teenager, maybe the one who wanted to be the teacher or the one who had her little bears set up and had her classroom? Were you always an educator? Can you tell us where education like took its root in you? Yes. The probably quickest answer is my mother is a teacher. All her sisters are teachers. So the women in my family have long been in education and I'm actually an identical twin. That's important because I sometimes say we and people are like, who are you talking about? But I mean, my sister, Tara. So Tara and I both went, you know, a step further and got graduate degrees. So she got her PhD, but I got my law degree. But here we are both working in higher education. And it's it's not at all random. You know, that was very normal for us to be encouraged to read, to be a good student, you know, see mom in the classroom before and after school, help her get her classroom ready. And I also loved it. So as a kid, I was often pretending to teach or pretending to host a talk show. So here we are. (laughs) Beautiful. All right. So when we are talking about higher education, are we referring to university or community college or help us to understand specifically like where what was your trajectory as you stepped through your own personal educational system and then into the world of education yes okay so i attended my kindergarten through senior year you know elementary and and high school education in the same building in a very small town in rural indiana town of jasonville it's where i'm from and my mom taught at that school okay so our lives were at this school but then i attended at ball state university which is in muncie indiana which was three hours from home i mean i really thought i was getting away and it has about 24,000 students. And that was really welcome to me at that time because you can't 
hide in your small town. Everybody knows you, especially if your mom works at the school. So it was really nice for a while to get lost in that sea of other students and to live in a larger city. And I was a political science major and sociology minor there and was a very good student. But my professors would write things like, great job on your paper. Please participate more in class. Because at that time, I was still shy, you know, a little bit hesitant. I had ideas and opinions, but they weren't coming out, right? Then I went to law school, which I deliberately chose. I mean, I wanted to do, but it was intimidating for me. And so I ended up going to law school in Nashville, Tennessee, which is actually where I now live. But I attended law school at Vanderbilt University. And I loved the academic part of that. I did and and still do love reading and writing. What was scary for me, but very useful and developmental was the oral argument part, the being questioned in class. I wanted to be a good public speaker. I wanted to be more confident in all of that, but it was hard to learn. And I'm very glad I did it. I mean, I do think, you know, going to law school is one of the best things that I did for myself, but I didn't love the different jobs that I had, like practicing as attorney. And what I ended up doing pretty quickly was landing in higher education. Now, don't think that's random. I think that makes sense as a home for me, right? It's, it's what you've always known. And so I have worked at community college, which I would consider, you know, higher education. But I do mean that like university, post high school education environments. And that could be community college, undergrad, graduate, professional education. So I've worked at a community college. I've worked at a small private. I've worked at a branch campus of a public institution. And then the last two institutions I've worked at are private research universities here in the U.S. Beautiful. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the activism piece. Like, okay. you know, I think part of what I'm hearing here, just based on your own story, is that there was this trajectory for you of actually learning how to overcome shyness, maybe overcome your inability to communicate clearly initially that then you went through law school and that kind of pulled you out of that so that you could do the public speaking piece. I'm not clear 100% if your activism here is in helping other women to do kind of overcome some of those same things. So let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Some of it is. Some of it is about overcoming that hesitation, that tendency, that people pleasing, the you know, the politeness that's that's mentioned in the title of the book. Mostly the activism, though, that I do is part of my day job. So it and it started in law school. I mean, I thought I was taking a class. I took a class, domestic violence law, and I thought just going to take this as a like a side class and elective just to be helpful to women in my life. You know, I didn't really intend for it to become the focus of the career. But where there were women's issues and like constitutional law, the, the classes, I had a hard time letting the stories go. And that's really actually not the point of law school. The cases are moot. They've already happened. I cared about the people. I wanted to know more about the people, not about the lawyers necessarily, or the judges who decided the case. I mean, I was getting attached to the people involved in their stories and the harms and injustices. And this is the life phase where you're figuring out what you want to be, what you want to focus on. And I 
had some summer jobs and they were focused on some, you know, corporate law. And I honestly, I was just so bored. I was bored and I didn't feel a sense of purpose or meaning. And you absolutely can go through any educational program and not come out of that activist. So I don't know that law school makes activists in all circumstances, but I started to get really driven in that respect. I also was experiencing some sexism and sexual harassment for the first time and aware of it for the first time. I think, you know, navigating the world in a woman's body through adolescence, you you experience nonsense and harassment and crap and some unsafety, you know, the whole gamut. But I was starting to really see it play out, right? My The guy I was dating, who I'm now married to, but we were trying to go to the same city to work when we were done. And so we had, it's a a crash course, two-day experience of all these interviews. And we were lucky enough that the employers come to us. So it's, it's kind of a nice experiment because it was contained. We had 23 interviews with the same firm. We have nearly identical resumes. We were very, very close in GPA and a, a balance of activities. He went in and talked about playing sports in undergrad in almost all of his interviews. And I had a lot of interviews that were fair interviews. They weren't necessarily harassing, but it wasn't just chit-chatting about sports and my usefulness to the company softball team. So I was annoyed by that. But then there were comments made because there were some happy hours at the end of the day. And we were being interviewed by a lot of men who traveled to do recruiting. And they would say things to us, then young women at the time saying things like, well, I can't bring you back because the next step is like dinner with our families. And I can't have my wife think that I'm interviewing these people out of town, or they were hitting on the young women, you know, and then there's the pressures of you want the job, but you're not wanting to subject yourself to this discomfort. So I was having these different experiences and also really across social class at the time, because I might, you know, come from a working class town and and family and had gotten myself at an elite institution, which I benefit from to this day. But I wasn't really feeling equipped to navigate all of the experiences. So I was having a lot of that internal frustration, the sense that it was wrong, but also not quite knowing how to handle myself. And this solidarity with other women where we also thought this was unfair, this is wrong, you know, our, our, Other terrible things happening in the world, yes, but this is part of it. This is a gender inequity issue that we're facing. And so I think it was law school that was this transition from maybe my like girl power perspective of of younger days into no, you know, I'm like, I care about this. This drives me. I it's keeping me up. I want to learn more. I want to read more. And has led me ever since. So I actually ended up getting a master's degree in in gender and sexuality studies after law school, because it was the major that I always wanted that didn't quite exist in Indiana at that time in the late 90s. Now it's since, you know, become more, more common at different institutions, but it has this interdisciplinary approach. So you can come to it from whatever your field is and really focus on it. And that's what I wanted to study. Except then I was encountering some resistance from like 
grad school professors who were like, you don't want to just study women. You won't be that marketable. You know, it's 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 better to just to research issues more broadly to get a degree in something else. So I really just was encountering a lot of this resistance in small ways anywhere that I turned. Mm-hmm. And then over time in every job, job after job, I became a person people t- came to talk to if they were experiencing sexual harassment. Mm. And I'm happy to be that person. And I didn't know I was that person, you know, until you just figure out that over time, and a lot of us had like a whisper network before we had actual resources, people were saying, go talk to Kara, she'll go to the meeting with you, or, you know, she'll she'll give you some good advice. And then, you know, it just became my full-time job. Eventually, it became the actual scope of the position that I do within higher education. And so for me, it is a lifelong journey and resulted in this specialization. And it's also, it's it's personal and professional. It's how I built assertiveness over time and became, you know, the woman that I am and, and the woman that, that people know they can come to for this resource. And hopefully it's really empowering. And to me, this is activism. So I get mm. to be activist in my job and do what we call institutional advocacy to make this place handle all of this better with more sensitivity and awareness and in a trauma-informed way Mm. and hopefully go beyond compliance, go beyond what the law requires. Like that's a line, sure. But should we do better? Yes. And can we? Yes. Absolutely. Well, there's so much here in your story, Kara, that is similar to pieces of my own. I grew up in a very small town, like my graduating class was 127. I then ended up at Penn State University in Happy Valley. And it was like, I can be a different person here. I also experienced sexual harassment, you know, when I left college and ended up in the in the career track that I was in, I experienced sexual harassment. And I actually sued my company back in 1980, something like really early, early 80s, where that just wasn't even happening back then. So on the one hand, I think that there has been, you know, this constant movement and momentum in the direction of making things better. And when we get to the other side of the break, because we have to go to the break now, but when we get to the other side of the break now, I do want to talk a little bit, Kara, about like the fatigue, the fatigue that there has been progress, no doubt. You know, it wasn't until the late 60s that women could have their own checking account, (laughs) but it still feels like it's not enough. And there's there feels like a lot of fatigue. So I'd like to talk about that when we come back from the break. But right now. Wickedly Smart Women, we would love to have some help from you. If you're enjoying this show and want us to stay on the air, please consider making a donation at www.wickedlysmartwomen.com. We'd also like to ask you to share with your lovely lady friends who you think might benefit from our content. I do want to say a huge thank you to all of our listeners who are downloading. We just made another breakthrough in the number of downloads and we are now at 100 countries yay so thank you to all of our listeners who are downloading rating and reviewing we are welcoming thousands and thousands of downloads from all over the world and i want to shout out this week to our listeners we might as well shout out to our listeners in nashville and let's also shout out to our listeners in cuba and mozambique and we'll be right back with kara tuttle bell 
The Wickedly Smart Women podcast is brought to you by The Wealthy Life Mentor. Women, are you on the edge knowing that life is calling you to make a change? Are you ready to be part of the evolution of what it means to be a wickedly smart woman creating your wealthy life by design, a life that is an extraordinary work of art? Angel B. Hartwell, the Wealthy Life Mentor, is hired by women in transition, women just like you who want to break through to their brilliance, become clear on the value of their wisdom, and embody a beauty-filled, balanced life of shameless self-expression. Discover your wealthy life readiness by taking the quiz at quiz.wealthylifementor.com. And we are back with Kara Tuttle-Bell. As I mentioned, when I introduced her, she's a speaker, author, consultant, and activist educator. And she has this beautiful book, Drowning in Timidity, Women, Politeness, and the Power of Assertive Living. You can find out more about Kara at karatuttlebell.com. We will have that for you in the show notes. So before we went to the break, Kara, we were talking about you know, the progress, yes, has been made, and we want to celebrate the progress that has been made. But from my perspective, and maybe it's only my perspective, I'm feeling fatigued. <laughs> I'm really feeling fatigued and had expected by now things would have improved. And it almost feels, especially in the last six or seven years, like there's been like a pushback. So I'd love to have you speak to that in whatever way you'd like, either, you know, taking some pieces from your book to maybe help our listeners to know how to navigate that internal feeling of, dare I say, exhaustion, <laughs> and be able to get up and, and uh, continue to move forward and in a positive direction with this advocacy for gender equality. Yeah, I I do agree with you, unfortunately, that I think we're in a period of backlash. You know, I'm in my mid-40s now, and that's what I, I talk about with a lot of the younger women on campus, too, is that progress is not linear, and we can't take it for granted. And the rights that we're talking about today, I mean, these rights for women are really fresh in terms of world history. And so... While I want actually us to be able to take them for granted, I, I want them to be rights, which should be guaranteed. We're just seeing the proof everywhere you look that they're not right, that they're that it's precarious and that we're still having some of these battles. Now, fatigue is real. I have it. I visit it. But I do talk about this in the book that I really think assertiveness is the balance. This is where we we should land most of the time when we can. Not that I don't sometimes want to respond aggressively because I do, you know, I do. But it's that often has a short-term payoff and like a long-term harm, right? You don't want people feeling steamrolled. You don't want to trample the rights of others. You don't want to become known as being difficult to work with. So, you know, sometimes I'm always like, okay, you know, the anger is valid. There are plenty of reasons to be angry. And I think that... We ought to be more comfortable with anger. I think you should ask it questions. Where is it coming from? What does it mean? Right? Take a breath if you need to, so it doesn't come out in unproductive ways, but like get more comfortable with the feeling and then figure out how to use it strategically. So for me, 
that anger or passion is fuel that keeps me going in tough times. But you really have to harness it the right way. I don't want anyone living in anger all the time. That leads to bitterness and resentment, and that's not the point of any of this. So how do you channel that anger? And I, I really try to channel it with assertiveness. And by that, I mean, we are engaging clearly, directly, fairly. We are sharing our opinions and our wants and our needs. And we have boundaries, right? It's, it's about setting boundaries and sticking to those. So I think whatever it is we're working on, whether that's self-care, you need assertiveness for that. If it's advocacy or activism, you need assertiveness for that. If it is protecting yourself, we need assertiveness for that, right? So it's both being willing to set that boundary or make that statement or advocate or advance this cause, but then holding firm too, right? And so that's another aspect of it because sometimes people walk away or undermine their own negotiation, you know, and when we're tired, that's harder to do it, to, to hold firm. So some of it is choosing your battles. And I think when I know that I've asserted myself and I've made it a daily practice, not something I'm going to try to do once every three to five years, if I'm negotiating my salary or, or in really high stakes environments, but every day that I then can put the day away at the end of the day, I know I did the best that I could. I allow myself some rest. I am not replaying the day wishing I'd said things and didn't say them or done things and didn't do. It actually brings me a lot of peace so that I can recharge and go back out the next day and try again. Mm. So that's that's how I try to, to battle fatigue. But I also do things that, you know, I don't come in hot all the time. I'm not like a, you know, fiery and and passionate all the time. There are plenty of meetings I don't say a word in. Sometimes people would be surprised to hear that because they think that I'm like showing up fierce and confident. Sometimes we're afraid and we do it anyway, right? Because mm -hmm. I've learned I'll survive the tough meeting. Mm -hmm. You'll survive. You will. Or the tough conversation. But usually we feel like it was really worth having. It was really worth trying. You did all that you could. Mm -hmm. And that has really helped me to be able to compartmentalize in good ways where I'm like, okay, you did what you could at work today, you know, go work in your garden, right? Mm -hmm. Have whatever space and time or journal, get it out. So it's not running through your head on a loop and it's going to keep you up till 3am because the rest part is so important. Even though it feels like there's so much going on, we don't have time to rest. It's the, you can't pour from an empty cup idea. You really can't. You've, you've got to take care of yourself. And sometimes that in itself is an act of resistance. I agree. Sometimes self-care is an act of resistance. Well, there's a couple of things I just want to underscore for the listeners here. One is this idea of assertiveness. And as you were speaking, what came to me is something that I often teach, which when I'm when I'm working with people and helping them to get really clear and, and powerful and engaging to be able to bring people into their business or, you know, get booked on speaking gigs or things like that, that like a core piece is we have a right to be here and we have a right to be heard. And the tonality and the kind of word choice and the how we show up can be seen as either aggressive or assertive, but the core piece of assertiveness is affirming your person, like really affirming your person that you do have a right to be here and you do have a right to be heard. So the other piece that I 
kind of had come in as you were speaking is, you know, there's this idea of gender inequality. And on the other side of that idea, men are standing, right? Primarily, it's men who are standing on the other side of that idea. My curiosity, Kara, is in your work and in your world, what do you do to enroll men to support and energize the point of view of we've got to progress beyond this? Yeah. So in my work, I do get to work with lots of men across many ages, mostly 18 to 65, I guess. And I am seeing generational differences that give me hope. So I will tell you what's really interesting to me is we offer these like assertiveness and boundary setting programs and they're not advertised, you know, as for women only or anything like that. It's a all are welcome. And a number of men are coming. Okay. Particularly the younger men and, you know, more introvert men, some men of our like international students, they're coming, asking for help with their own assertiveness, speaking with authority. They feel like they're getting trampled in, you know, the corporate workspace and the the lingering effects of this, like, claw your way to the top, dog eat dog type of capitalism. And so I am seeing more male recognition that it doesn't have to be this way, that it's not healthy. Now, and they're torn, right? It's an internal struggle. I need to learn this, but I really don't feel wired this way. Can you help me? And some people are seeking the aggressiveness. Like they come and they're like, teach me how to be aggressive. And I'm like, no, that's not actually what we're doing here, right? That doesn't really get us where we want to go. Now, on the other side of that, I am trying to undo and, and help men unlearn some of their gender stereotypes and socialization that I think comes up, presents as entitlement, right? They feel very entitled to the time and the space and volume and the decisions and and the coffee. I mean, you know, like when you start looking, you do, you do see it really extend. And they sometimes think, you know, occasional women, they're feisty and that can be fun, but see, that's a little sexist, right? I'm like, that's not, that's, I need you to get past that as well. Right. So they think, oh, I'm a woman lawyer. And they still say that like, it's a thing, like there's not hundreds and hundreds and thousands of women lawyers. So I get this room when I come into a room to present, to be assertive, but they still don't expect it from everyone. And I'm like, well, you can't just create room for me because I'm talking to you on this topic. I'm actually far more concerned about your next meeting that I'm not in and how you are including or not including everyone else in the space, because I bet it's structured to favor extroverts, to favor, you know, the guys who talk about sports. Oh my God. Right. Exactly. I was like, you know, like even the rapport building at the beginning of the meeting, all of this is shaped by gender and it's silencing, you know, other people in other ways. And so we're not getting the best of the people we've hired to work here. We've recruited to go here. You know, this is not what we're supposed to be about at all. And, you know, sometimes they're really bad and really resistant and they ask questions quite directly. And I just have, I mean, I'm prepared for the question. I take the question, you know, I think that if you don't address it, you've missed your opportunity. So I've had people raise their hands and like, what would gender, you know, 
harassment in the classroom even look like? Like, that can't be a thing. You know, and I'm like, no, it is a thing. It is a thing. So it's really helping them explore things they hadn't thought of. Like, do you only call on women? And are you calling on them to pick on them because you don't think they should be in your class? Because that's a problem. Do you never call on women because you really think the men are going to lead in the profession? Because that's a problem. I mean, then we talk about whether or not they're having relationships with students and they really, I mean, really still want to argue about that, particularly with graduate students. So there's a lot of people who think that that's okay or consensual. And so we talk about power differentials and they haven't thought of things like if you're in a relationship with one student, you're actually making sure that the other students don't have the same amount of access to you. So it becomes a differential access issue, even if you think this one person is is consenting, which when the relationship is good, maybe it feels fine, but it's about the power differential and how that can take a turn. But then also there are tools, like there are apps that you can turn on during a meeting that measures the voices and who's taking up space. So with the really tough groups, we show them that where I'm like, okay, well, let's see how the meeting goes. Then. Direct like, it's, evidence. It's, it's direct <laughs> evidence. I mean, they they don't evidence. like it. So you got to have the right person doing it. Like they're not my boss. They can't right. fire me. So right. I get to come in and facilitate some of this self-reflection and some coaching and then I leave you know so it's it's and we're gonna have to leave now (laughs) unfortunately (laughs) unfortunately we're already at the end but I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us today and hopefully our listeners have gotten some really powerful takeaways from our time together listeners we do love feedback please let us know what you thought of today's show by calling into the listener line we'll have that for you in the show notes or you can send in questions or guest suggestions to listeners at wigglysmartwomen.com. Please be sure to check out Kara at karatuttlebell.com. We might even give you a shout out on the show. Thanks for tuning in. Keep your ears open. And remember, you are a wonderful woman. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, and listening. Be sure to rate and review Wickedly Smart Women on Apple Podcasts and share with other women who can benefit from today's episode. Wickedly Smart Women is the premier podcast series for informing, activating, and inspiring the leader who carries profound wisdom and knows that now is the time to welcome wealth. We welcome your feedback and guest suggestions and invite you to subscribe to our mailing list to be notified of each new episode at wickedlysmartwomen.com.